Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of EM Insider with me, your host, Crystal Higgins. In this episode, I spoke to John Malloy from Redwill, who lives and works in Miami. John has been in emerging markets since the early 90s and currently manages around 10 billion euros in emerging and frontier market strategies. We started off by discussing the current outflows from emerging markets, and I asked John whether he believes investors have a responsibility to deploy capital to less developed countries. Yeah, I think, I mean, we don't look at it that way. Um, I think it's an interesting way to look at it. I think, I mean, part of it's the flows have been driven around economic cycles. Um, as we know, the U.S. market has done extremely well for the past decade. The dollar has been strong. Um, the prior decade, if you look at the early 2000s, money flowed into emerging markets and frontier markets and did really well. Mm. So part of it's economic cycle, I think, as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, really investors kind of voting with their feet. I think. Our view really is that we could be on the cusp of actually money coming back into emerging markets, frontier markets. Um, If we look at basically those economies recovering from COVID, we look at commodity drivers, we look at certain drivers domestically. So we're actually Mm -hmm. probably more, our view is more that we're, we're probably at an inflection point of flows coming back into those markets where the risk reward actually is really high for debt and equity investors. Mm. And you, you brought up commodities there. And I know that for a while, you know, there was a time when maybe commodities would have been sort of a, a safe haven, uh, you know, for, for people during, a, you know, rocky, rocky times that we're seeing at the minute. Because of the current situation that we're in, there was a point there where commodities were not offering the same kind of, you know, safe haven for investors. And I've noticed recently that this, this, the commodities has sort of like flipped in 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 fortitude i suppose or for, or its fortunes um how how nimble do you have to be in that regard at the minute and how how do you how are you position your portfolio when certain sectors are it would seem maybe month on month changing their position as you know safe havens or not or is is that even how you're seeing it right now i mean we take a longer term view um, we're definitely taking a medium to longer term view. So we're looking out over years. Um, we start with basically commodity uh, models, looking at supply demand. But you're right. I mean, we've seen the recent volatility in things like copper, um, oil. And you know that's part of any market, really. You have volatility in, in, in many markets and commodities tend to have that, those same volatility characteristics. But the key for us is just that long, long-term supply demand impact. And the big driver today is really, um, you know, energy transition and you could call it climate change, climate crisis. Um, you know, Mm. it's just, we're, we're in a incredibly unique period and, um, you know, to, to ignore commodities and the impact commodities that have on the markets, you, you, you know, investors are going to really miss out on some great investment opportunities. And where, where are you seeing the, the, in the long, in the medium to long term? Um, where where are you seeing the most exciting opportunities in in that regard, and you know, in what what regions would you say? Well, just starting at the the highest level, which is the largest commodity in the world, which would be oil. Um, oil will likely remain high for a long period of time because there's divestment in oil. You have endowments, governments not investing. You have even companies not investing. So, mm. by definition, we're going to have higher oil for longer. So that's and and that feeds through all other commodities, which is important because it just increases the cost of other commodities. Um, 
But if you look at oil, Middle East, Saudi Arabia, that's a market that we think does extremely well. Um, other markets that have oil opportunities would be like Brazil, for example. Brazil is it's not an oil exporter, but they're self-sufficient in oil, so that's important. Um, in addition, we also like copper. We think the the metals and materials that benefit from energy transition, electric vehicles, battery technology, so lithium, copper, aluminum. Um, we think that those materials do extremely well, and we have opportunities throughout emerging markets to invest. I mean, if you look at Latin America, I mean, Latin America basically is one big commodity market, and so you know, fifty percent sure. of the exports are commodities, and so a region like that definitely benefits. Perfect. Um, this is something that we've covered a little bit before, but I was hoping to revisit it um, again. You mentioned Latin America, and I know that not to, and I do promise you not to turn this again into like a, a political chat because you know we're talking about the markets and investments. But you know, there's we're looking like five out of six of the major Latin American countries are going to be led by left leftist government soon. And from an investor's point of view, from an emerging market investor's point of view. Um, do you see this as the road to stability um, in the in the area? Is this is this a good sign? Is well, good- yeah. I mean, the reason why there's leftist leaders is because uh, a lot of the population has been left out. So if you look at real wage increases over the past two decades, I mean, that's really where those governments have have really disappointed. You know that the the population. So from that respect, I think it's good if we can have a, you know, an economy in Chile or Brazil or Mexico that's more dis- that with greater dispersion, greater equality in terms of the wage dispersion. I think that's, that's good for economic stability. I mean, it, it has to be longer term. But typically what we've seen is these, the leftist leaders come in like AMLO and they have all these ideas. They run on uh, their very populist platforms giving away everything and they try to get in there. And, and once, once they're in office, they find that it's really hard to, you know, put all their policies in place. Um, and they typically move to the center. And we're seeing that in Chile right now. Uh, Lula was in power, as you know, in the early 2000s. It looks like he might be coming back into power in Brazil. Um, but actually, when he was there, um, Brazil did extremely well. Uh, Brazil had very, very strong growth. Um, economic development was very strong. The housing market did really well. Education did well. So it wasn't just in certain areas. I, I'm pretty hopeful. I think you know some of the CEOs that we talk to, we talk to management all the time. They actually believe that they can get more done under leftist leaders and and mm. you know some of these leaders who are are willing to innovate and do things differently. So. I think that's really, you know, the key. And again, going back to the early 2000s, when we had Lula in power, Brazil and Latin America were some of the strongest performers globally. Yeah, I had to revisit it again. I don't know if you saw it. The last time we had a chat, I actually wrote, that's what I led on the article. I led on your line about, you know, you, you know, you kind of sort of not casually, but you mentioned it. And um, I, yeah, I just never, I'd never actually heard an investor say that before. It was always the opposite. It was always a real anxiety and fear of these lefties coming in and you know throwing money around and giving millions to the poor so it's interesting your point that well i think there's a degree i mean obviously when you have populism like and and it it shifts too but like chavez for example in venezuela Madero, who, and then, who i met a couple of times actually yes that was interesting did you have um, another think about what you spoke about 
Aside <laughs> <laughs> from the fact that he maybe was he, less he, less than truthful. Well, he's yeah, yeah. He said he was going to pay the bonds and every you know. Uh, what did, what year inter- was this again? Sorry. This was in the late nineties. So. Um, and in New York. This was in Caracas. In, in oh, Caracas, in the, at the presidential palace in Caracas. Yeah, yeah. And you were a hedge fund. You were in the hedge fund game then. We were. Yes, I was at an, another firm and uh, managing hedge fund assets. But he basically everybody. The market was very much afraid of him coming in and the market traded down into that. And once we went to see him, met met him, heard him say all the great things about investors and, and that he was going to plan to come to New York and talk to investors. Obviously, we we. We we made a lot of money after buying a tremendous amount of bonds um, mm. post that. So that was that was interesting. But my point is that you know, in terms of the leftist leaders, it, you can go too far. You know, so Argentina right now obviously is having a difficult situation, very very high inflation. Um, you know, really is not sustainable. So there's kind of a a balance on, in terms of how far they can go in terms of their policies. Um, I suppose looking from to going too far left and going too far right, um, and again you have mentioned this before. Um, you know the most extreme version is Putin or King King Putin. Um, aside from the very obvious moves that a lot of maybe EM debt investors had to do at the beginning of the year after the war in Ukraine, I was wondering if you could talk through some of the biggest moves you've made. You know the biggest changes you've made to the portfolio this year and, and, and the reasons behind it to give a bit, get a bit of a Yeah, I mean, we, fortunately, we, we have handled the Russian crisis pretty well. I mean, we, we had some exposure, but it was relatively small and we sold it very quickly given our experience and, and given how we can see things unfold pretty quickly. But I, I would say the basic um, views which changed after that were our views around oil and that oil would clearly remain higher for longer, gas, uh, natural gas, and we have a crisis in Europe with gas, and that's going to create, you know, enormous opportunities. Um, we don't have any exposure in Central and Eastern Europe, so that's an area that will probably be under pressure for quite some time. But, you know, where where we have opportunities as a result of higher oil would be the Middle East, UAE, Saudi, um, possibly parts of Africa, some of the frontier markets like Nigeria that could end up doing well with higher higher oil. Um, but it also, you know, highlights the just the importance of geopolitical risk. We have our advisors, Rice, Hadley, Gates, Manuel, led by Condoleezza Rice. So they were pretty helpful in in, in what terms kind of, of conversations. What kind of conversations? Sorry to put yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, sure. What kind of conversations would you have with them? You know, what 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 what, it, what do you go to them with, and what kind of not 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 to say ask you to get. They're off the record. They're very frank. Um, we've been talking to them for well over a decade. So um, they're pretty open on, you know, what their views are and, you know, the fact that, you know, Putin is a madman and things like that. So, sure, sure. but, but they're pretty balanced too. They're not uh, politicians. They're, um, they're historians, they're policymakers. They, they still talk to world leaders. So they have a different perspective. Um, today we live in a world where, you know, news really doesn't exist. I mean, there's, um, mm. there's, there's what media mean, out there. What do you mean there. by that? Well, because there's, there's propaganda on every side. Um, so you have basically Understood. propaganda coming out of, of DC from different factions in terms of anti-China, but then you also have, uh, you know, propaganda coming out of China against the U.S. And so it's, it's important to understand 
you know, what the reality is, what the drivers are, what are the options for governments? Mm. I mean, I think, um, you know, we will probably kind of most certainly talk about China and, and China, yeah, Taiwan, you obviously. very generously led me there, but I'll <laughs> um, let you finish your point. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think the, the um, you know, what Xi and the Chinese are seeing happen to, to Russia and Putin, I think are really interesting because, I mean, if the world really shuts off China, that's a different story from Russia. I mean, Russia is a very insulated, yes. commodity-driven market. Um, they have very few manufactured exports. Um, China is is very, very different, much larger country, um, much more outward-facing. Um, and I think if you look at too where China has come over the past decades, I mean, I don't, I don't think the Communist Party wants to go back, you know, to Being 10 poor. to 15 years exactly. So, and then if the other got, thing you've got was, an insight into my Google Doc. No, because I think one of the one of the the points on it was literally, would the world would the EM investor community treat China in the same way it seemed to so comfortably treat Russia in the in in the case of now everyone has their own view on this and I totally understand the headlines role in this and the the propaganda on both sides, but with the growing pessimism and the change in language you know around the you know the discourse uh, on us china relations as a us based investor who's overweight in china what in reality could the investment community do in the event that there was any kind of a conflict involving china it, it's it's it just feels too big uh, to to exclude in the way that people were able to do with russia well What's i think your i mean I mean, governments could make investors act. That's one thing. So, I mean, obviously, right now we have sanctions on Russian equities. We have sanctions on Russian bonds. So, we we have no say in that, basically, as a U, as a U.S. investor. So that's that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but there, we're already seeing that. I mean, we're seeing areas where within the Chinese economy, within the Chinese stock market, there are certain companies and, and as a result, their stocks that are sanctioned so that we're not able to own. And, and we haven't had exposure to those. And um, you know, they're either tied to the Uyghur issue or they're tied to military complex or, or, or other, other areas. Mm -hmm. um, but those stocks typically derate over time. So the market starts to price them in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think a bigger, you know, an outright conf direct conflict with China, Taiwan, sure, that would be incredibly disruptive for not only for equity markets in China, but also global economics. China's the second largest economy in the world. If we think about the impact on commodities, on materials, mm -hmm. on there's so many aspects. So I think you know it would be an incredibly negative scenario for for the world. Um, I mean, we, we're going to be our view really is that we're going to be living with this China. Taiwan US conflict for quite some time. And as active investors, um, you know, we have to manage that risk. And at this point, conflict, do you mean well, the conflict in what we're seeing in, in sort of posturing? Or do you think it could do you do you think that it is more likely that there's going to be a conflict in the next six, ten years? I mean, that's again, I keep putting you, I know, I keep that's putting you in a really impossible. Predict, so my crystal ball is situation. a little fuzzy at this point. But I, I think um I mean, I think odds favor something happening at some point. I mean, I think that the Chinese believe that Taiwan is part of China. And frankly, the U.S. haven't completely called them on it because of the policy. I mean, we still don't have a, a, a Taiwanese embassy here. So, mm. you know, there's there's there are policies that, you know, and, and 
obviously we're trying to um, push for freedom and voting and whatnot, but I mean, we saw, we saw a handover of Hong Kong um, from, from the UK to the Chinese. So that, that happened. We mm. saw rules, laws changed as a result of that, mm. um, that give the party more power to control what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, that didn't completely kill the market. I mean, we've, you know, that, that happened some time ago. So maybe there is some, um, resolution that it's, that is a, a peaceful kind of transition as opposed to something that is forced by the military. Um, but before that, you know, there's going to be quite a bit of saber rattling, like we're seeing now, um, sure. obviously Pelosi going to Taiwan doesn't help the situation. She has this very important party meeting coming up later this year where he has to act strong. So, mm. but again, you know, it's back to our positioning. I mean, we're, we're overweight China right now, but in early 21, when everybody was in love with China, we were underweight by 10%. So well, that's very interesting because um, it felt like that was a time that it felt like China could do no wrong. So what was your reasoning back then? Uh, one, valuations were extreme. Two, the, we saw this wave of regulation coming in. You know, we sold Alibaba right away in November of um, 2020 when they canceled the Ant Financial deal. Our view was that was a big uh, red flag that things were changing and things would change for some time. And it obviously did. But at this point, uh, the market's pricing in a lot of that risk. The government, we think, will, uh, or we, we're seeing that they've pivoted away from additional regulation. Uh, they're focusing on stabilizing the economy. They're focusing on growth. And we think you know, once they get past the party meeting, likely COVID would be behind us and that they can look at economic recovery. And if you look at the growth next year, I mean, growth for this year, maybe it's hard to see, you know, Chinese Chinese growth rates from the government are kind of suspect. But if you look at the published rates, maybe they're 4%, maybe they're 3.5%, but it's likely to see growth picking up in 2023 which is interesting because growth will likely be slowing in the US and slowing in Europe. So yes. you could have this divergence of growth. Um, it's interesting that you say that because I know that in the conversation we had before, you know, you're saying you're predicting a 2023 rally, you know, an emerging markets rally. And I'm just wondering what are the kind of the key catalysts you're waiting for for you to feel that the market is say at an inflection point? Are are we are we at that inflection point yet or are we nearly there and at what point at what point will we know? Yeah, I think unfortunately, we'll only know after the markets rallied, which is sure. usually how it goes. And then everybody becomes bullish on emerging markets once again. But <laughs> but we're, what we're seeing basically is, um, let's just start with Fed, Fed policy. At some point, they will be done. So we're not sure exactly when, but we're probably sooner, you know, it's it's sooner than later. So maybe we have a few more Fed hikes September into the fall, but at some point, and we see inflation rolling over and we see the economy in the US weakening up. Um, you know, with the exception of the job number, there's quite a bit of evidence of, of weak growth. But if we look at emerging markets, they're in a different position. They really haven't recovered from COVID. They're just starting now, with China being the kind of poster child. I mean, they, they were locked up until just a few months ago. And so when we see look through the emerging market complex, we should have more of a COVID recovery towards, you know, second half of this year into next year. So that's a positive driver. Um, commodities remain very strong. Um, we see, you know, oil remaining strong. We see the metals remaining strong. That's another driver. And the other fact is that emerging market central banks started to tighten well before the Fed and the ECB. 
So at, at some point, they will stop tightening and the forward markets in terms of those rate markets are already starting to come down. So we see basically interest rates coming down into next year at a time when the currencies are very, very cheap. Mm-hmm. So all, all that's super bullish, but the, the, the backdrop that we also see, which is very important, is the, the valuations are extreme. I mean, emerging markets trade at 10 times earnings. Our portfolio trades at 10 times earnings. Do you think there's a, mis- have- a big mispricing out there at the minute? We just think it's 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 priced too cheap for for the risk, including emerging market bonds and including emerging market currencies. They're very very attractive. And what what would have to happen for that to change in the sort of like the, the short to medium term or the, the medium to long term? For the positive. For the positive, let's go with that. <laughs> um, I think for the positive one, it would be getting through the Fed rate cycle. That's that that would be one. So. Maybe you know a real pivot from the Fed, or at least a pause. Mm-hmm. Um, two, probably getting beyond the party meetings where she can focus on economic recovery as opposed mm-hmm. to his political, the rest of his political career. Mm-hmm. Um, those those would be the, the main drivers. Okay. Um, before I let you go, even though I could I could talk I could talk for much longer, there's a couple of questions I suppose maybe uh, to 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 sort of round up on, which would be, um what keeps you up at night and also and i'll leave this last give you more time to think it over because i'm feeling uh, generous um you know are there any is there anything this year that you would with the power of hindsight have done differently or done sooner so you can answer you can answer in whatever order you wish i, I would say on, on china we probably added to it a little bit earlier than than we should have um but you know that's that we had quite a bit of market volatility earlier this year especially after russia um, with the ADR. So that would be one thing that we probably could have handled a little bit better. That said, uh, China has come back in the past couple of months. So it's clearly, you know, it seems to be working. Um, in terms of keeping me up at night, not that, you know, we it's have not a, to say that you do. You know, no, and I, we really don't because <laughs> we have, like, I mean, we have <laughs> a di- diversified portfolio. We don't have concentrated risk. We, um, But I would say, Fed going um, too far in terms of hiking rates. So really, Really going, um, you know, overboard, and that would bring economic U.S. economic growth down, which would probably have a pretty good uh, ripple throughout the world in terms of, you know, supply chain and and even if you look at Taiwan and 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 Korea, those um, markets are are pretty tied to what's going on in the U.S. So those would be that would be the biggest risk. Okay, well, on that note, I think it's a good note to leave things on. So John Malloy. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure and I uh, hope to talk soon. Great. Thank you very much, Crystal. Always a pleasure.